Hope you all are doing well. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 10. Um, there's some scratchiness in the mic. I'm not sure what it is. We'll figure that out before I start preaching. But uh, I have a couple things for you before we get started. Um, if you weren't here when we first got started, we want to let you know that we have a mom's room right outside those doors on the right. There's a little couch area where you can sit and uh, go and chill with your child if you want to. Speaker, as Jordan said, that runs in there the entire service. Um, I wanted to uh, start with just some giving updating. I hadn't done a, a giving update in a while. It's mine. It's my thing. Okay. Um, that's going to be annoying to everyone, but we're, I, I don't know what to do. So we're just going to, we're going to let it be annoying. Um, so just some giving updating, and then we're going to go into, we'll be in Acts chapter 10, Acts chapter 10. Uh, so about a year ago, we did a capital campaign and our goal was to raise 200000 for the building. Um, Lord willing, we'll uh, be purchasing a building sometime soon. Um, and we, we knew that money that we had saved from being a church for seven years, plus what we need to probably have to use for a loan, plus uh, a capital campaign altogether would help us be able to purchase and renovate a building. And so we made it a goal. Uh, Jack and I met um, and we thought Joe was not an elder at that particular point. So Jack and I talked through... Uh, the amount we think is doable, but also stretching. And so we decided to, to have $200,000 as the amount that we would have a capital ca- campaign for. We did it for a two-year campaign that started last December. So this coming December will be one year, and the following December will be two years. Um, so everybody pledged. We, we were blown away that particular night. Um, but here's where we are now. So <clears throat> total pledges um, have been 193000 so we got really close to the 200,000. Here's where it gets incredible. Here's where Remedy, God through Remedy never ceases to kind of blow my mind. Thus far, out of the 193 pledged, we're not even a year in yet. We've already received $103,757.30. So we've received more than half in less than one year, which is amazing. I mean, that's astounding. Uh, those kinds of things don't happen generally you receive about 80% of what's pledged. I think we at Remedy are going to likely receive all of it. I think we're just going to receive all of it. What we're going to do in December is, to all of you who pledged, send out a a note that says, you know, you pledged this amount, you've given this amount, you know, and the remaining year is what's left, just as a kind of a reminder of what's going on. I think that's helpful for all of us just to remember what we pledged, what we gave, etc. But I wanted to let you know, astoundingly, um, we have given over half, $103,757.30. Um, the 30 cents is quite important. I don't know. Uh, out of 193. And we, we, we guessed at 200 that would be stretching. And the Lord has, I mean, just amazed us as elders. Now, here's the second part of that. Um, we also have, in addition to capital campaign giving, just our normal giving that we have each week um, as a church. <clears throat> Quarter one and quarter two, that means three months periods. For the first half of the year, we will write on schedule. Our, our amount that we need to receive per month is about 14000 and some change. Um, and through the first six months, we were receiving around there. Quarter three, uh, we were $10,000 behind giving through quarter three. Uh, so in October, just October, we've received about $10,000 out, out of the 16, not 14000 So... It's pretty good. There are five weeks in October, so you know, we could exceed. But we wanted to say quarter three ended up being $10,000 behind in what we needed. Now, that's probably because the church has also given 103000 already uh, in addition to what's going on. So there's been some transitions and everything. But I just wanted to let you know, I'm not saying, hey, we got to step it up. I'm not saying uh, anything necessarily has to change. I think we're doing quite well. I do think if... If you're not giving in your normal giving, you want to keep that going. But I think it's also just helpful for everybody to kind of know, how's the giving going? Here's how it's going. We've, we've given 103 out of the 193 pledged. Uh, in the course of the year, we're $10,000 behind budget and just our normal giving. Here's the good news, though. We are $17,000 lower than what we planned on spending. So we're still in the positive this year by 6000 because... We're just quite frugal. We, we don't spend a whole lot of money when it comes to Remedy Church. That's how we've saved over the course of the seven years um, over about $165,000. We just have extra each year. So wanted to let you know what's going on in regard to giving. 
quarter four, the last three months, are always traditionally large for churches. Everybody gets in their Christmas giving. Everybody um, gets everything in for, for taxes. So I just wanted to let you know how things were going thus far. I'm not, you know, I'm not freaking out. Uh, I think everything's actually going pretty well. Uh, and I wanted to say thank you. I wanted to let you know the letters will be coming out in December for, for your capital campaign and say the Lord is being gracious to us. Um, and I, I appreciate how things are going. So <clears throat> I'm going to pray. And we're going to go into Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, we'll start at verse 1. Um, if you were here last week, you know that I finished the end of chapter 9, and Joe preached last week, and he advanced forward to 1118, because as a few months back when I knew I was going to a family reunion in Alabama, I wasn't sure where I'd be landing, but I knew I wanted to preach this particular text, which I thought was going to be one sermon, and then as I studied it this week, I, it's going to be two sermons and now I'm pretty sure it's going to be three sermons. So um, uh, it's a six-point sermon, and I thought, I can do six. No, I can't. And then I can do three. No, I can't. So I, right now it's looking like this is going to be part one. Next week will be part two. Next week, the week after that will be part three. And all of that will be chapter 10, verse 1 to 1118. 1118. Joe started at 1119. And so that, what we're looking at it is all really one big section from chapter 10. Uh, and it's, it's astounding what, what Luke's doing. So let me pray, and I'll give us an idea of why it's such a astounding text, and then we'll, we'll jump in. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for <clears throat> who you are, how good you are to us. Thank you for being a God that speaks. Thank you for being a God who loves us and cares um, that you could have simply created us into existence and never spoken your word to us, but because you are so gracious, you have spoken, you have, and you still speak today through your word. And so it's a glorious honor for all of us to open up your word <clears throat> and hear you today. I pray that all of us would be completely mindful of the fact that uh, we hear from you through your word, not just in the uh, speaking uh, through preaching on Sunday mornings, but every morning that we open up your Bible, every evening as we read your word, you are speaking to us, and that, that truth alone should astound us. And so prepare our hearts. We know that your word never returns void. We know that you can do amazing things through it. We know the Holy Spirit is always teaching those as they study your word. So would you do all these things this morning? And we pray that, especially with today, the topic that we're looking at, uh, for some of us, the scales would fall off. For some of us, years of <clears throat> just naivete would fall apart and that we would see that you're calling us to an amazing task. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as you might or might know, the book of Acts is written by Luke. And Luke is going to go to some painstaking efforts in chapter 10 and chapter 11, repeating, giving us the story and then saying what happened in the story in chapter 11, uh, wanting us to make sure we understand, hey... Not just Jewish people are being saved anymore. Gentiles are being saved now. So in chapter 10, he tells us the story of how this major shift in missiology happens where it's always been directed towards those who are Jewish and sometimes people who are half Jewish and Samaritans. But now, chapter 10, in the book of Acts, Luke is writing this history, shifting it and saying, it's not just the one race of Judaism, but all races namely the human race, are being included into salvation. Every single race is getting in on this. And chapter 10 is the story of how this becomes clear to Peter the Apostle. And Luke, the Gentile, is so intent on making sure we understand that, that in chapter 11, verses 1 through 18, he just repeats the whole story again and summarizes it again and gives us to it again to make sure we get Luke the Gentile. Hey, I'm a part of this. Because of this major shift that happens in chapter 10 and 11 and all of Christianity, I get to be a part of this. And so this is a major thing that's happening um, in the book of, of Acts chapter 10. And so uh, remember, the, the outline of the entire book of Acts is right there in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. This gospel will be proclaimed, you will be witnesses, this gospel will be proclaimed to the J Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And it, the whole book of Acts is outlined helping us see how that's happening, where the first Chapters 1 through 8 is to J Jerusalem. 8 through 13 is going to Judea and Samaria. 14 through 28 is how the gospel is going to the ends of the earth. And in order to go to all the ethne, all the uh, ethnic groups, all the ends of the earth, Gentiles are now being included. And chapter 10 has this shift to where it's going to happen. Now, 
I want to try to help us feel the weight of the first century Jew of what it might feel like to know that this gospel doesn't just go to your ethnic uh, brothers, but different ethnic tribes and how, how jarring that is for them. So the best I can do is try to contextualize that for us today in America. Um, my best friend growing up, uh, his name is Jerry. Whenever I was a young guy, maybe 10 or so, 11, I can't remember, Jerry moved in next door to me. Jerry's dad was black. Jerry's mom was white. They were from Pennsylvania. And up north, I don't think it was much as a big a deal as it was down in South Carolina back in a long time ago when I was younger. So, um, <laughs> so Jerry became quickly my best friend. He and I still keep in touch. Um, and I actually led Jerry to Christ in high school. Uh, and through ongoing, him just being my best friend and hanging out continually and living next door to me and me, me driving in places and him riding places with me and just getting to know him, I saw the, the struggle that Jerry had. I remember getting off the bus one day um, where those who were black and those who were white both made fun of Jerry because he was in the middle. And I just remember him seeing the t- running off the bus, and I was the only one that got off at his stop, running up to his house, tears in his eyes, not wanting to ever struggle with. Now, Jerry's the most likable guy you ever know. As he got into high school and, and college, he's so outgoing and so overcoming. It, it, it didn't bother. He's just such an awesome guy. But in middle school, these things are, are jarring for him. And I remember tears in his eyes, just me and him, crying because this was happening, because everyone mistreated him from both sides, calling him a freak. I can remember them calling him a freak because he was half white and half black and how upsetting it was for him. Um, And me, being his friend, um, being distraught over it. Whenever I was younger, most of the people I hung out with in middle school and high school were black people. That's that's who I hung out with, who I played basketball with. I listened to Boys to Men. I listened to Run DMC. Like, I'm not kidding. I I listened to rap and and R&B. I didn't listen to much else than that. Those... Those were the guys I hung out with. Those were the people I understood. Those were the people that I played basketball with every day. That's why I can crush you in basketball right now um, if we ever get on the court. I'm talking junk, but I got the mic. But uh, So I want us to, I want us to feel, uh, as I read this John Stott quote, the weight of what's happening here. So when we read this, and we'll read it in just a second. We're not going to be able to go through. We hear Cornelius getting saved, a Roman official getting saved. And so it's a big deal. A Roman official is getting saved, and that's, that's, that's a Gentile. And we, we can make the, the chapter about Cornelius' salvation. But John Stott takes, I mean, I remember reading this um, a week and a half ago or whatever, and John Stott took my breath away. I remember reading it, right? Jordan, listen to this. Um, I'm making, if a quote's good, I make Jordan listen to it. And he's like, oh, okay, that is good. Or something. He's like, okay, and turn back around. Um, <laughs> this is what Stott says. The principal subject of this chapter is not so much the conversion of Cornelius to Christianity as it is the conversion of Peter from his deep-seated racial intolerance. So this, this chapter is more about Peter understanding you've got to get rid of your deep-seated racial intolerance. Now... I'll get into that in a little bit about what that might look like for us. Because I'm not saying you all have a deep-seated racial intolerance. But it is a serious issue for us today in America. And it is something in the South that perhaps we're just, as I, as I prayed, naive about. We need to become aware of our naivete of how things happen. Here, here's an example. You might not associate with this. You might not understand this. This might not resonate with you at all. But I remember it clicked for me about three, four years ago, I've always kind of felt this, but I've never been able to understand it. And I was in one of my PhD seminars, and they had a pastor come in, Jerome Gay, he's from Raleigh, I was up in, in seminary. Jerome came in and sat, and we're doing a cultural kind of mercy ministries class and how we can do it. Jerome came in, the only black guy in the class, he's doing his MDiv there, we're all PhD students, and he's, he's teaching us about why it's difficult for white guys like myself to reach black guys and why it is for white people to go to black churches. And he said this. And when he said this, it just clicked with me. Like, I get what you're saying. And so I'm saying this to say, you, you might accidentally have some naivete in your own life about reaching other, other ethnic groups because you just don't think about it. And it might be things like this. So he said, uh, South Carolina Baptist Convention, Southern Baptist Convention wants to plant a church in an African-American neighborhood. Perfect. That sounds great. We need to find somebody who's black to do it. And he goes, it's not that easy. 
because you've got several different kinds of black guys. You've got um, Ice Cube, and you've got Carlton, <laughs> and you've got Denzel in the middle. And so you need to say, like, well, who's the neighborhood I'm going to? And I, you can't just say, let me pick somebody who's black because you've got to pick the right kind of person that understands that context. And I remember thinking, yeah, and only naivete would think that. It's not like I'm against black people and I don't want to understand them. It's just that's true. Or he said this as he went on. He said the reason why you have white people that don't go to black churches and sit under black churches is because you don't mean to. But a lot of times men who are white don't think they have anything that they can learn from a black pastor. And they don't think that they can put themselves under the authority of a black pastor. And I remember thinking... Never thought of that, but man, I can see that that's the case. So I'm not addressing racial intolerance at Remedy today and over the next three weeks. I'm addressing what might be accidental naivete. Accidental naivete. And that's what Stott wants us to see here, is that these things can happen. Verse 1. Uh, well, let me go up to verse 43. And he sta- this is, if you remember the last, uh, the last time in 32 through 43 in chapter 9, whenever I preached two weeks ago, I I said, this is Peter's preparation for what's about to happen because it's a big deal. So God takes him over and he's getting him to rub shoulders with Gentiles, healing people. And we saw three miracles where he heals the the first guy who had been in in uh, in a state of being paralyzed for a while. And then he heals Dorcas, Tabitha, whichever one you like better, um, who had who had died, and then the third miracle is he stays at, right there in verse 43, he stays in Joppa with a guy who's Simon the Tanner, who, a tanner is a man who, change, who deals with animal skins, Jews never get around that kind of stuff, and that's a big deal. Like, Peter's kind of letting go of some of those cultural norms as a Jew, Jewish person around a, a guy who's, you know, a tanner, stripping animals, and he's around it. And it's, it's, it's interesting that he, he stays in Joppa. Now, Joppa jumps out because here's the deal. Joppa is a significant city in biblical history precisely because of racism. This city was the city that Jonah boarded, the famous boat to run away from God's plan to evangelize the people that he did not like, did not want to associate with, and did not want them because they were not like him to have the gospel. Now, in this particular time, it's the city that Cornelius is going to send his people to. We're going to get to that in order to find Peter so that Peter will not disobey like Jonah, but rather obey God like Jonah to evangelize people that aren't like him that he would not associate with the Gentiles. So it's, just, it's an amazing turnaround in biblical history, even the, the significance of being in Joppa, the city. Now, I'm only going to go through verse 16. Um, the whole sermon is uh, 11 through 11.18. I only have time to go through uh, verse 16. So... What we're going to do, go ahead and put up the, 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 the uh, title for me. Here's, the, here's what we're looking at. We're looking at God, God's stages, um, the stages of God's sovereign hand in converting the saint and the sinner. Why the saint? I'll, I'll explain. So if we were to just take away where it says the, the saint and it says God's stages and God's, sorry, the stages of God's sovereign hand in converting the sinner, this is how a sinner gets saved. No matter who they are, white, black, it doesn't matter, Jewish, Gentile, it doesn't matter. How someone gets saved are these particular stages. That God prepares the ground for them to get saved. A messenger comes and shares the gospel. The two come and they interact with each other. Somebody finally shares the gospel. That, when that happens, that sinner gets converted and the Lord gives them the Holy Spirit. And then there's reports to the church like, God just saved somebody. That's, that's the six points. I mean, that's, if, that's, that's the next six points. That's the next three weeks. So that's the stages of conversion in any case of any sinner. That's what's happening in this particular text. But the stages of God's sovereign hand in converting the sinner, but also the saint. The conversion of Peter's happening along this. As I've been talking about the entire time, his heart is being transformed to rip off, as Stott says, the deep-seated racial intolerance that he has. So Peter must overcome the prejudice that he has about the Gentiles. Derek Thomas looking at this particular uh, text says, prejudice still plays a disturbing role in the life of our church today. And as we examine Acts chapter 10 and 11, we would need to ask ourselves some disturbing questions whether we are in need of repentance at this point. Now, repentance can be both intentional and accidental. So don't hear me saying you're all 
intentionally practicing prejudice and you need to repent of it. I'm saying all of us could become far more aware, I think, of what this particular text is teaching us. And I'm pick, we're going to this text and we're talking about this topic because we're going through the book of Acts. The book of Acts is determining what we talk about and this is what we're talking about. So, chapter 1. At Caesarea, remember this is um, the gospel spreading around now. At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. Notice this description of this man. We would hear this and likely think Christian. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. Look at even verse 22. It's going to give a little description. We're not going to get there today, but look at this. And it said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright, God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. So there's a lot of good things that have said about him. When we hear all that, we think, man, this guy must be a Christian. He fears God. He gives alms. He prays continually. He's well spoken of. So he's an upright, God-fearing man. All right, verse 3. So the key is he's not saved. He's not saved. He's, he's heard of Judaism and has converted likely to that, but have not heard of Jesus. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him. So this is about 3 p.m. Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So you have this man who seemingly follows God. There's some interesting things that it says. He probably wasn't a Christian, as I said. He was a, mo- he was a monotheist. He uh, believed in, and had a respect for Jewish ethics. He, he believed the ideals of them. He was likely just not ever heard of Jesus. And so he's a devout man. He was pious. He feared God. He understood who he was. Uh, then God, God was bigger than him. Well, all his household, he saw the importance of his entire hi- household understanding these things. He gave alms generously, so he saw the needs for those who were less fortunate than him, and he was likely wealthy, to help them. And it says he was generous, and it infers that he, w- he, did, he did this with joy, not begrudgingly. And he prayed continually to God, so he observed prayer times as a, as a daily routine. Uh, so he was well spoken of by the Jewish nation, as it says in verse 22. So he, he lived out his beliefs in front of other people, and they thought that he was... Um, they thought that he was likely a God follower, if you will. So how does that apply? It's just if we're going to stop there, how do those things apply to us? I don't think you have to look any farther than our city. You don't have to go out of Rock Hill. You don't have to go out of York County. That basically every other person in the South that we know is going to describe themselves in these kinds of ways. And we're going to think likely that maybe they're a Christian. But there's really kind of two categories of unbelievers around us. There's the, there's the pagans that outright say, I don't care about Jesus and don't want to have anything to do with them. But in the religious south, there's also the religious that fit into this category, who conform to the rules. And they, they do what looks like what people do as followers of God. But they don't have an actual heart change. They haven't trusted the gospel. And these people are difficult to spot. They are difficult to spot. Cornelius had not yet heard the gospel. He still didn't, needed to know who Christ was. And Peter had to get over his uh, racial bigotry to be able to do it. So Cornelius has this, this vision. I mean, this is pretty astounding. If I had a vision like this, we had a vision like this, we'd be kind of freaking out. And um, he says, I want you to go to this house with a couple Simons in it. I want you to, I want you to go to Simon Peter. And I'm going to send three of the people. I want you to send three people. Go down to Caesarea um, and bring them. And then bring them, I'm sorry, go from Caesarea down to Joppa and then bring them back here. That's what I want you to do. Send these three particular men that are likely Gentiles to go there. Uh, find Peter and come back. Now, around the same time, this is the sovereign hand of God. So the first thing I want you to see is this. God prepares the ground for the unconverted person's heart. This is how everybody gets saved and this is how Cornelius is going to get saved. And this is how we as believers need to understand that there's people around you that God's not only preparing your heart, but He's preparing them. There's, there's people in this city all over, and God is preparing the ground of the unconverted person's heart. If you don't believe this, you will never share the gospel with them. 
If you don't think that this person can get saved, um, if you don't believe that God has prepared the ground, you're not going to tell the gospel. So believe this. The Lord prepares the ground of their heart to hear. We want it to be fertile soil so when that gospel seed's thrown, that the Lord would, that they would trust in Christ. So let's just take even one more step back. Pray. We look out, as it says in Matthew 9, verse 36, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, not go. Pray that the Lord would send workers to the harvest. So pray. God, prepare their heart so that whenever I share the gospel seed, it would fall on fertile soil and their hearts would be changed, that they would trust in Christ. So, here we have a situation coming into verse 9 where Cornelius the Gentile gets a vision from the Lord who, who loved God seemingly, just didn't know Him through Christ and needs to hear the gospel. He needs to hear the gospel. And God has selected Peter who's struggled and will, has, will struggle with racial intolerance. God has selected him in particular to be the messenger of the gospel. Now, this is significant because Peter is the spokesperson of the disciples. There is no, nobody more important of all the apostles right now than Peter. So God goes right to the top to pick the guy that's going to start sharing the gospel to the Gentiles. And if Peter does it, you would think, you would think that the Christians are going to follow, those that follow. So verse 9, here's what happens. The next day, as they were on their journey, because this was, this was a long journey, approaching the city, Peter went on the, up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, noon. Um, it's good to pray. Good to pray a lot. Pray at noon. Uh, it's side note application. But Peter goes up. And we should say this. Um, Peter's, Peter loved the Lord dearly. Peter had an issue here that Stott's pointed out and Thomas has pointed out. And we're kind of ragging him out here, right here. Peter loved the Lord. Okay, So this isn't like a hard-hearted, hates Jesus kind of person. You aren't either. You love the Lord. I know that those who are in Christ, you love the Lord. But like, like Peter, all of us still have things that need to be addressed ongoing the rest of our life for sanctification. So this devotion is not Peter in rote prayer. This is a real heart love of God that Peter has, just like you. Just like you. And the Lord still has things he wants to work on, just like me, just like you. Peter went up on the housetop to pray because he loves the Lord. And he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. This is where it gets awesome. Fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descended, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. There were probably some swine in there, commentators say. So there's, there's some pig in there. There's some bacon wrapped in there. We're going to get to that. Um, all kinds of... Uh, verse 12. All, all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him. Now, I don't know what kind of version you're looking at or if it's got the red letters, but mine's in red. And that's because we believe Jesus said this. So this is coming from Jesus to Peter. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Jesus Christ says to him... You who are Jewish, who have always lived by the Jewish dietary laws. You've always eaten kosher. Some pig is coming out of the sky with all kinds of other stuff that you never ever would eat, ever. I want you to get up, fry you some bacon, and just get on it. Like it's so good. It's salty, delicious yumminess forever. It's all yours. And listen, Peter says, by no means, Lord. We don't need to, we don't need to give Peter a bunch of junk here. Like, that's because... He had lived his entire life this way. This is, this is how he had always lived his entire life up until this point. And so the idea of going against what had been his, his upbringing is so revolting to him that he's like, No, Lord, I cannot eat that which you've said is unclean. That's unclean. You've, for hundreds of years I've said that. I, 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 it, that's so sinful for me to do that. I can't. And so we don't need to give Peter a bunch of junk for saying that. That's likely what all of us would say. By no means, Lord, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Uh, unclean there, don't hear, and it just needs to be cleaned. Hear unclean as needs to be despised and rejected and, sh- and shunned. It's not like, oh, you just clean it up and bring it in here. It's all good. It's not that. It's despised, rejected, shunned. Don't bring it into my presence. You can't clean it for me. 
That's how we need to hear that. It's common. It's unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. If you underline, this, this is one that you might want to underline. What God has made clean, do not call in common. He's not just talking about food here. He's not just talking about food. This happened three times. Three men are coming that are Gentiles. Three times this is going to happen. God, I mean, this is a... Goes into a trance and has this weird, weird vision where a great sheet has falling, on, representing all four, four corners of the earth. All kinds of animals. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. By no means, Lord. That's an odd thing. And just to make sure it gets driven home, God makes it happen three times to him. Three times. You're going to go through this weird kind of weird vision. What God has made clean, do not call common. Do not call common. So, um, this happens the very next day. So, in verse 9, as we see it happens the very next day. Peter, in his mind, is thinking to himself right now that uh, I'm going up to pray. At my mindset right now, if anybody who's a Gentile, and I've been kind of dealing with some Samaritans already, I'll show respect to them. But uh, eating Gentile food, or even eating, let me back up, eating with a Gentile, or eating Gentile food, that's unthinkable. That's absolutely unthinkable. I would never do that. And the Lord's going to address that right here. So he goes into a prayer. He's not sleeping here. He falls into some kind of trance. I I don't know. We can't get much more into it on knowing exactly what's happening. We just know it's some kind of vision that the Lord brings him in. And he says, while we hear, hey man, go eat the bacon. Uh, because he's, because he's a, a Jew that has followed the kosher meal, his strict dietary life, the entire, his entire life, he balks and shudders at this particular commandment. Um, and he said, by no means, I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the Lord says, what God has made clean, do not call in common. So, There's two levels here that we understand this. The first level is the dietary laws of the Old Testament. You don't have to follow anymore. Those particular foods, you don't have to to call them unclean anymore. You can partake. That's, That's the first level. But there's a second level, which is people that do eat those foods that you cannot associate with, that needs to end. And you need to associate with them. And not only that, you need to eat with them. And you need to eat their foods. And not only that, you need to preach the gospel to them. Because they can be the people of God now. It's not just Israel who can be the people of God. They, I can make them clean. What we say, despise, shun, and shudder, never ever to be allowed into this. I can make them clean to where they never have to be despised, never have to be shunned, never have to be thrown away, but now make them holy, pure, acceptable in my sight, by the Son, by the blood of Christ. Kent Hughes says, Peter's about to see in living color his cold attitude towards the world, or at least towards non-Jews. Teeming millions were stone blind spiritually, and yet Peter's callous reply, teeming millions of Gentiles were stone blind spiritually with no hope for salvation unless someone preaches to them. And Peter's callous reply was, by no means, Lord. But once he really understood what it all meant, Peter would never forget this strange vision. In fact, he spoke over it over and over and over again. And, Pete, and God says, what God has made clean, do not call uncommon. And this amazing statement now has, even for us, tremendous missiological implications. Everyone in this room, and I don't know if there's someone who's actually Jewish, but everyone in this room is in this room because of Acts chapter 10. All of us are the, you know, the shunned ones who got engrafted into the branch. And so this happens particular times so that um, he's ready for the three men that are going to come. So... This is what I want to do here. 
This is how I want to move into just this first sermon to get us thinking about this. I want to let us see this sweet gospel of Jesus. And in this particular text, and let it be the thing that since it has happened to you, motivates you to mission. Motivates you to think, this gospel has been so transformative in my own life. I was so far gone, and now the Lord has, by His grace, brought me to this particular point. It's going to motivate me to share the gospel with not just people that look like me, talk like me, have the same socioeconomic status as me, and that I feel comfortable with. But it's going to break down... I don't want to say racial intolerance because I don't think that we have a church full of races. But at least it's going to start breaking down some of the, the walls of naivete to think. I can share the gospel with more people than I think. And I think that the way that that happens, I don't motivate you to do that. The Bible doesn't motivate you to do that with guilt. Motivation by guilt lasts two weeks. Motivation by gospel doesn't end. So I want to motivate you today, that's all we're going to do, to do this with the sweet gospel right here from this text. Verse 12, and it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. That, that is us. Spiritually, we're just animals. This is how Calvin describes us. Just wild animals, ravenous for sin. We were common, as it says in verse 14. And unclean. Romans 9 would say a common vessel rightly going to receive the wrath of God. That's who we are. Common vessels outside of Christ. Unclean vessels who rightly deserve the full wrath of God because we willingly choose to live like ravenous animals in sin. But as Ephesians chapter 2 verse 4 says, but God. In our own willing choice to do that, but God chooses to send His Son. Chooses to send His Son to die for us. Chooses to send His Son to die for us to receive the wrath that we deserve. To, to die the death that we deserve. So that now, because of that, we're verse 15. What God has made clean, do not call common. God has made you clean. In Christ, you are completely forgiven. You are not common. You're not common anymore. You're not despised. You're not shunned. You're not revolting. You are now, Colossians 1, holy, 23 I think it is, holy and precious in His sight. Think about this. The God of the universe even though you willingly chose to rebel against Him, saves you because of Christ and your faith in Christ, calls you holy, and now <clears throat> holds you up and says, this particular child of mine is holy and precious in my sight. You and I know, like, the life we've lived, even up to now, and, and, and will live, the struggles we have with sin. We can turn around and look at that that line of what's brought us up to her and the particular sins that are brought up, uh, us up to here. And we are well aware of those particular things. But the overcoming power of God to save says, yeah, I I'm aware. But here's what's true of you now. You are not common. You are not unclean. I have made you clean. So don't call yourself common. Don't call yourself unworthy. Don't call yourself unholy. Don't call yourself not precious in my sight. You are now holy and precious in my sight. Knowing that this is who you are in Christ. This is the only proper motivation to live on mission. Because God has so transformed me and the wretch that I was. Now, I am properly motivated to go live out this gospel, to go share this gospel. It doesn't matter who they are now because God has changed me. Whoever you are, and this particular text in Acts chapter 10 helps me see 
all kinds of walls are broken down on who I think can be saved. The Lord gives us beautiful hearts now. And we can go and live on mission. So let me ask just a couple of questions here. Maybe they'll convict you. Maybe they won't. I, I, I think the goal of this is not to, not, to, not to make you feel guilty because I want the gospel to be your motivator for mission. But I do want you to ask some, some reflection questions here. Um, what does your prayer life look in regard to asking the Lord for real opportunities to do evangelism? And, and I don't just mean for people that are just like us. What does your prayer life look to say, Lord, blow my socks off and bring somebody that I would never think about doing evangelism to? Perhaps I'm naive to that, Lord. Help me see it. If that's not the case, let's take one step back and just, just ask this particular question. This is a difficult one. Why don't I ever pray like that? What is it in me that's not moved to ever even think that way, to pray that way? Help me understand that, Lord, because I don't want to think that way. I want to be the kind of person that thinks that way, that wants, to, that wants to share the gospel with whoever. Help me understand that. Help me understand my heart so that I can be motivated for mission. Gospel motivation. Um, day by day, as you are living out sanctification, what does your life on mission look like? What is Matthew 28, Acts 1, 8? What does it really look like each day? And are you properly motivating yourself with the gospel to, to carry out the mission of God? We can be like Peter. Listen, Peter had a beautiful heart vertically. Acts, chap, Acts chapter 10, verse 9. The next day as they're on the, the journey approaching to the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray. This is a beautiful heart vertically. Beautiful. And in some respects, a pretty good heart, pretty good heart, horizontally, but pretty lousy heart, horizontally. I'm not saying you don't have a beautiful heart vertically towards the Lord. I think you do. I know you now. I've been the pastor here for eight years. We've been a church for eight years. I, I know most of us pretty well. I think that um, we can also be thinking about our horizontal heart towards our fellow man, whoever they are, in York County. God had a plan to overcome that for Peter. And God has a plan to overcome it in your life. So, here's what I want you to do. What can I do then, Fudd? This is pretty big. Okay, well, we're going to talk about it for three weeks, first thing. Or two, depending on how next week goes. But the first thing is, preach the gospel to yourself daily. Any particular text you look at, even this, about unclean food, the gospel's in it. The gospel is in every single text you look at. Whatever you're reading that day, take that diamond and turn it and let that piece of the gospel amaze you. And then the next day you'll turn it and you'll see another facet and another facet. And another. The, the gospel is a diamond that we turn to see the beauty of to motivate us for mission and motivate us to live for Christ. Preach this to yourself every day. Remind you, yourself that you are not common. You are not unclean. You are holy and precious in God's sight. That motivates you, yes, of course, to not sin, but also motivates you to mission. So first thing, preach this gospel to yourself every day. Remind yourself who you are in light of a holy God outside of Christ, but don't ever stay there. And who you are in light of Christ because of the holy God who gave his life for you. And then be thankful. After you preach the gospel to yourself, be thankful. Thankfulness drives you. You will not live out the mission if you're not thankful for it. Be thankful for what he's done. And then be amazed at what your thankful heart will start doing. As you share the gospel with whoever. You will want to spread the gospel with everyone. I want to conclude with a, maybe an unexpected text. You've heard it a billion times. I want to conclude with this. Because I think that it's just a parable that Jesus tells. But let this parable, if you were to insert yourself into, be the one that's been transformed by God and living out in a horizontal, thankful heart this way. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test saying, Teacher, 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord with all your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength. Ugh. Hooked on phonics didn't work for me. All right. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. And I even know this. With all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And your neighbor as yourself. And he said, you have answered correctly. Do this and you shall live. And then he tells the story. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's everybody. It doesn't matter who they look like. And he tells this story, getting right to the heart of it. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise, that was a priest, a Levite, a worship leader, if you will. When he came to the place and he saw the man on the side of the road, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... Let that hit the Jewish people that are hearing that. The half-breeds that you can't stand. A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And he saw him. And he had compassion. If that's us, the reason why we walk to him across the street is gospel motivation. Because we have been shown compassion, we show compassion. Went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two days' wages. How much do you make in two days? He took out all of that and gave them to the innkeeper. And he said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. And Jesus looks and says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor among the men who fell among the robbers? And he said, they said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. We have Samaritans all over. We are the Samaritans as well. Let's, let's go and do likewise. I want to give you the second point is this. Oh, it's up good. Here's the second stage. God prepares the ground of the prejudiced person's heart. That's Peter. Thus, God prepares the messenger for the task. The first one is that God prepares the ground of the unconverted person's heart, but he also prepares Peter, the messenger, for the task. And this is what happens in your life. For those that don't know Christ, God prepares them to hear, but he also, it's just absolutely true, he prepares you for the task. I've given you some ideas on this. Preach the gospel to yourself. Be intentional about sharing. But the truth is, the Lord is preparing your heart for the task. You are capable of being obedient to Matthew 28, Acts 1-8. And you need to believe that the Lord is preparing the messenger for the task. And you're that messenger. We're going to go into a time of Lord's Supper where we have an opportunity to reflect on the beauty of the gospel again. And this is a great tangible way for us as we take the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves of who we are in Christ, rejoice and worship after that for what the Lord has done, and then be sent out for another six days to live on mission, to share the gospel with people, and then come back again next week, beat up and banged up, because we know that we don't live 100% the way that we should for Christ, not be beat up by me. You've been beat up by the world. Next week you come back and Lord willing, the gospel will be preached to you and you'll be healed and whole, reminded that you're already healed and whole, reminded of who you are, that the beating up and banging up of the world, even though it happens, that you come back here again each week to be gospeled, to be reminded who you are, to be motivated to sent back out on mission. That is the rhythm of life as a, as a Christian. Here every week, to be gospel, to be in fellowship with your Christians so that you can be sent back out to fight sin and live on mission. We're going to take up the Lord's Supper here in just a second to gospel ourselves, to remind us of who we are, to remember what Jesus has done. And so for those of you that are believers in Christ, uh, anybody that's a believer in Christ, you're welcome to the table. If you're not a believer in Christ, I would just ask that you observe. I would just ask that you watch 
and observe and let the gospel be proclaimed to you as we take the Lord's Supper as well. You will visually see us take the Lord's Supper. The way we do it at Remini is you come forward when you're ready. We'll have a song during this time. And so you think, pray. Um, as it says, let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and try and drink. So for believers in Christ who are not entrenched in ongoing sin, you do examine yourself. And it doesn't say, and if you realize you're sinful, you don't take. That's, just, that's not at all, right? For those, you, you examine yourself and you so eat of the bread and drink because you say, I'm, I'm so sinful this week, I have to take because Jesus is my only hope. If you're entrenched in ongoing sin and you know that you are absolutely unrepentant about it and you don't want to stop, then you don't take but that's not the case likely for most of us. So during this time, think, pray, reflect. Come forward to the front um, and then come back to your seat holding the bread and the cup and I'll lead us corporately because the Lord's Supper is meant to have a fellowship and a unity about it. Uh, make sure you do note that one is wine and one is juice and you get the one you want. So I'm going to pray and then you take your time. You can sing with us if you want and when you're ready, you come forward and get the the bread and the cup, and come back to your seat, and I'll lead us in a time of the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Jesus, you're, you're just so good to us. In our continual, desperate living of life, we all are continually aware just how desperate we are for you, but just how good you are to us. And I pray that as we've looked at this particular text and as we look at it over the next couple of weeks that we would be moved and motivated for mission. But now, Lord, in these moments, we stop and pause to remember the gospel. May the good news of Jesus never be something that we get down and move away from. That's not the gospel. That's not how it's supposed to happen. The gospel is what we come to sit at the feet of the gospel of Christ, we sit at your feet, the cross of Christ, and never leave. It is our only hope. It is the one thing we talk about over and over because there is no finishing talking about it. So be with us now as we take the Lord's Supper. We love you. Be with in Jesus' name.